I have a lot to say today, but uh, I think that you guys would probably be okay with that on a day like today. Uh, first of all, I was at the priest's retreat at Mount Angel for the last week, and I love going to that retreat because that's one of the only opportunities I get to see Father Brent Crow, who served you not so long ago. So he wanted me to say hi to all of you. So this is a hello for Father, from Father Brent Crow. You know, he really loved all of you, and he loved your faith, and he loved seeing how many people came here to St. Cecilia for daily Mass, and so it was really good to see him and to spend time with him. <clears throat> the second thing I want to say is this is incredible. <laughs> you know, what I see over here, all these young men and young ladies, well, sorry, Scott and Raquel, but you know what I mean, <laughs> you know, those who are serving, serving here today um, at, the, at the altar of the Eucharist, it's pretty incredible. Um, our retreat was all about the Most Holy Eucharist, and, and it was really incredible. Sometimes you'll hear a priest who, who's a really good storyteller retell stories that you know, and, and you hear them like you're hearing them for the first time. You're still just like drinking everything in, which is, first, the topic has to be that good <laughs> for you to hear that story over and over again. And when the topic is our Lord Jesus Christ in the Most Holy Eucharist, it's the best topic. There's not a better topic than that that can draw you in and kind of suck you in. And so during that, one of the things that I really pondered was the story that I know many of you have heard that, that Archbishop Fulton Sheen had really told a lot of people and brought to light. Um, it, it's generally referred to as Little, Little Li, a small Chinese girl in communist China. So in communist China, um, there was a time period where they started to break into the churches and tear things out and knock things down. And they came into this little, she was about 10 or 11 years old is what it was said. And they came into the church and they knocked down the tabernacle. And the hosts that were inside the tabernacle were strewn all across the floor. And there were 32 hosts there. Now at that time in which she lived, many of you still remember, that there was, you know, at this point during the day, you, it's allowable to receive the Eucharist twice in a day. Um, you know, if you happen to, to be at two different Masses or two different special occasions. Uh, but at that time, you were only allowed to receive the Eucharist once. And remember, the only person that would touch the Eucharist is the priest with, with his hands. So you would receive kneeling and, and on the tongue at that time. So when she saw all these hosts there and the guards that were there, she would sneak in each night, essentially making a holy hour, and crawl on her knees, and with her tongue she would bend down and she would consume one host each night that she was there. She didn't know that there was an exception, actually even at that time, for something like the desecration of the Eucharist. But only with the information that she had, just her own heart and love for the Lord, she came in each night and she knelt down and crawled up to a host and bent down and consumed it by pressing it to her tongue. And then on the last night, the very last night, she was caught by one of the guards and killed. That's a martyr for the Most Holy Eucharist. It's, it's pretty tough. I think we've all heard the term being a cafeteria Catholic before. This is an altar of sacrifice. It's not a cafeteria. 
It's an altar of sacrifice, and priests are ordained to offer sacrifice. The most holy sacrifice of the Lord happens here in a unique way, in a way where we can actually receive him into ourselves. Many people who have trouble believing in the true presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist need to ask themselves a more fundamental question. Do you believe those first words that we say in the creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. If we believe in an almighty God, an all-powerful God, the God that created all things and created the very building blocks of other things that can be created, the creator of matter itself, he's the only one that can make one form of matter into a different form of matter. And in fact, for that almighty God, that is an easy miracle for him. An easy miracle. But what does he do? He allows it to stay in a form that can be assimilated into us. I'm sure many of you have said this to your children over the years. You are what you eat, right? That's because very literally the food that we eat repairs our body. It gets assimilated into us and becomes essentially a part of us. So the Lord wanted to be close to us in that way, to be a part of our own body and blood so that we are bound together as one body, every single one of us in this church. One of the stories that was told to us by the priest over the retreat was that he's done a lot of work at Columbia University. Columbia University is a very liberal university these days, right? But yet he is a Catholic priest preaching the truth, preaching the truth of the Eucharist. And while he was there, there was a man, a Muslim man, who had come over from his country to come to study at Columbia. But he was infinitely curious about our culture, about our religion. And so he entered into a Catholic church, and he sat at the back, and he started to read things and understand. And, and he went to go make a meeting with the priest. And he said, you know, he said, Father, you guys really believe that in that white little disc, that's God? He said, well, yes, you, you know, we do. He's like, so you really believe the, the God who created all things, that, that that's actually him? And he's just like, yes. He goes, do all of you believe this? <laughs> he, said, well, he said, well, that's the Catholic belief. That's the belief of the church. He said, whether everybody accepts that, he goes, I, I, I don't know. And the reason he asked that question is because he saw so many people coming up to receive our Lord in the Eucharist as if they were at just a normal cafeteria. You know, I've heard Father Larry Richard, Richards call it the Jesus cracker. That is not what it is. It is the completeness of our Lord, his body, blood, soul, and divinity that started out as just a piece of bread and that is completely transformed into him. And when we talk about the Eucharist to other people, sometimes we don't have to be complicated. St. John Vianney, the patron saint of priests, often would only do this. He would simply say, during his preaching, he would say, il est là, il est là, in French. He is there, he is there, he is there. And he would just repeat that so many times. You know, el, as, el está ahí, 
El está ahí. He is there inside of the tabernacle. So when we receive him, this man couldn't believe that Catholics actually believe that he is there because of the irreverence in which they received him. Now, I've been told what my favorite gospel is. Isn't that a funny thing that people could tell you what your favorite gospel is, right? I've been told what my favorite gospel is because apparently I bring it up a lot and you guys hear it a lot, so you can tell me, apparently. Um, But not that long ago, on Sunday, was the story of the road to Emmaus, right? That is us today. Every one of you who's going to participate in this Eucharistic procession We are on the road to Emmaus. We are literally going to be walking with Jesus. And and why is that one of my favorite times? Because it's a profound shift in the history of salvation. And here's what happens, right? The day of the resurrection, the reason that we're all here in the first place is because Jesus rose from the dead. He is walking along with two believers on the road to Emmaus. And, of course, I love that part where he's, like, talking to them. He said, are you the only, they say to Jesus, are you the only one that doesn't know about the things of Jesus of Nazareth, how he's died and crucified? And and now they say he's no longer in the tomb. And Jesus is like, tell me more about me, (laughs) right? You know, he's just like, tell me more. And it's incredible that they tell him about that story. But then he begins to open up about how all of these things must be fulfilled right? And they still don't, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing who Jesus was. So they're walking along with him on the way. And then they beg him to stay with them that night because they know, they're like, why? Like, where our hearts not burning inside us? There's something, they know there's something about him, even though they can't recognize him. And then he takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it. And it says, and their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized it was Jesus. And sometimes we miss this next step. And it says, and he vanished from their sight. Salvation history is long, over 4,000 years old. Christian history, over 2,000 years old. But at that moment, that's a pivotal moment for all of us in this church. Because at that moment, Jesus is showing he's going to ascend into heaven only 40 days later. He's like, this is the way that you will know me from this point on until I come again. And we know he will come again. He promised that he will come again, but we don't have the walking, talking Jesus. We have him in the Eucharist. And he vanishes from their sight because he's present with them in the Eucharist. There was no longer any need for him to be there. So sometimes we look up here And we only see what appears to be bread and wine. But it is the Lord. He is there. He is there. It's actually him. So from that moment on, from that time frame on, people knew our Lord most intimately in the Eucharist. The way that we can receive him into our very selves. And so one of the things... I want all of us to realize today, especially if we're going to be on that procession, is that the reverence of these holy martyrs of the Eucharist, the reverence that we have in our heart, is one of quiet conversation with the Lord. 
we, are, we want the rest of the world to see us walking through the streets in adoration of our Lord, in silence and in songs of prayer, not in conversation and not in things that, are, that don't have to do with the Lord. Now, just like in every situation and every different point in our life, some of us are going to be really close to the Lord in the Eucharist and the procession, and some of us are going to be far away. But remember, He is there. He is there. Show the world who you love. That's, in fact, the way that people knew who Christians were in the very beginning. It was because they acted completely different from the pagans around them. That is what we have to do. If we want the world to change, we have to show people that we are different, that we are transformed, just like the bread and the wine are transformed. Lastly, I'll say this. There may have been a couple of you that have heard this story at, at some other places where you've seen, seen me fill in, but it's a funny story. So, so a lot of you know that towards the end of my time here, I became the Catholic chaplain at the, the Air Force Base right there by PDX Airport. And so I've been doing that a lot these days. And, um, and so one uniform is camo, and then the other one is my clerics. And so I kind of alternate between those two things. And so I had an unusual Christmas, an unusual Christmas. And this is as much kind of a little bit of a Eucharistic and vocational story as anything else. And I tell that why. Because if we want the Lord in the Eucharist, we need priests. And I am the vocation director, and I'm here to beg you to be my partners in that. To be for vocations, to encourage vocations. Because we need young men to become priests. To be unafraid of the culture of the world and the things that have sucked them down into the pit. And they need to climb out of it and become priests so that we can continue to be fed. So my Christmas day, as I've come to know, <laughs> when you're a priest, your life is not your own, which is one of my favorite parts of it, but it's also the most difficult part of it as well. And so on Christmas day, I thought I would have the opportunity. I didn't have any masses where I was going to cover for, for anybody that day. So I was like, I'm going to fly to Texas to see my family on Christmas day. I was hoping to do that ready to go. But you all remember the weather on the day or so prior to Christmas this year. It was a huge mess. And I, along with about 6,000 other people, had their flight canceled. And so I called my mom on FaceTime that morning. And she was so disappointed. You know, she had, and then like my nephew and my brother-in-law were sick and she cooked all this food, right? And now three grown men were not going to be there. And so she cooked and everything. And she was so, so disappointed. And I was disappointed too, but at the same time, I'd grown to accustomed to disappointment to a certain extent, right? And so about an hour and a half after I got off the phone from my mom, I got a call from one of the commanders on the base. And he said, Father, are you available? Can you come to the hospital? I said, I should be on a plane to Texas, but yes, I, I am available and I could come to the And in that very instant, I knew at least why I had missed my plane that day. And he said, there's a young man, young airman, who got in a car accident, and we don't know if he's going to make it through the day. He's on a ventilator in the hospital. 
And you know, there's nothing like being one body and understanding other people's suffering, right? Because sometimes we feel really sorry for ourselves. We have a little pity party, you know, for ourselves. And then we're face to face with somebody else's suffering. And then you say, oh, Jesus, I guess it's not that bad, <laughs> right? You know, and sometimes we all need that reality check, right? So I go into the hospital. I see this young man with scrapes all over his face on a ventilator and his mother. On Christmas Day, they were there. And so I had no idea what their religious background was at all. But as I started to talk to them, I found out that they were both raised and baptized Catholic, but, but just hadn't to not be really practicing at the moment. I said, can I anoint your son? She said, oh, yes, Father, please, please anoint him. So then I anointed him. And then the one-star general of the guard, the air guard, came, and then the other commander came. And it was a real lesson to me of sacrificial leadership as well, that they also left their families on that day to come visit this man in the hospital. And so you would think that that was the end of the day, and that was enough excitement for Christmas Day for me, right? But then another example, I know some of you have met him, a parishioner here, Colonel, Colonel Hofford is the, uh, is the wing commander of the base. In fact, he's the one who sort of recruited me there. And he was on alert. So the most important thing that that base does is that there are two F-15s, two pilots, and a crew there 24-7 to protect our skies, to protect the entire western seaboard. That's the main mission of that base right there. So it's like a firehouse on a runway, basically. So there's always two pilots and two planes ready to go. And who decided to take that shift on Christmas Day? The commander of the base. Another a great example of sacrificial leadership to me. And so then I thought to myself, now, now where am I going to celebrate Christmas Mass? It's Christmas, right? And so I called the commander. I said, I just visited the airman in the hospital. I said, you know, Colonel, can I come celebrate Mass for you? <laughs> so that I'm celebrating Mass for somebody, knowing that he wasn't able to go either. And he's like, Father, that would, that would be incredible. So I go over to the base, and I'm there kind of hanging out with them for a little bit. And then I'm the prepared guy. People know me as being like the travel masket guy, the guy who has all the priestly things you need all the time. And I have anointing oil on my keychain, right? You know, and so ready to go. And so I start to prepare for mass. And can you guys guess what this holy priest forgot to bring in his masket? Does anybody have a guess? The host. <laughs> I forgot the host. And I'm like looking there horrified, you know, digging through everything. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst priest in the world. And so, uh, but then I realized there is a chapel on the other end of the base, and we have hosts in the chapel. This is a World War II chapel, the only building from World War II left on that base. And almost nobody ever goes in it, sadly, except for the drill weekends where all the guardsmen come in. So usually about two days a month, people are in that chapel. And then in the end, I go over there to the chapel. I walk through the doors of the chapel, and I hear a really loud noise, like static. I'm like, what is that noise? Like, what is that? I thought, did they leave the PA on, or well, what is this? And I get about halfway through the aisle, and then all of a sudden, I could tell, I could distinguish what the sound was. It's water. And I'm like, 
oh no, that's, that's water. And I walk around the corner, I see all this standing water. And I walk around the corner further and I see behind the toilet, there is a pipe gushing like, like a uh, fire hydrant. I am just gushing, gushing, and gushing. I was like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I, said, I had no idea what to do. You know, the pipe burst because of the freeze and everything like that. I'm in my clerics. And so I just, I go to a dry spot and I roll up my pants and I take my shoes and socks off and I wade into the water. <laughs> so I start walking into the water and then like I get down there and the valve is all the way down in the corner like this. And like I said, like a fire hundred, it's gushing over my head. So instantaneously, I'm soaked head to toe. And I'm sure a modern valve turns off in like three or four turns. A valve from 1941 takes significantly more turns, I learned. So I'm down there turning the knob. And there's a part I start smiling and laughing. And the water is freezing cold. I start smiling and laughing in this moment of absolute discomfort. And finally, the water turns off. It's still flowing, but more like a garden hose at that point. So I dry my feet off. I put my socks and shoes back on, the only thing that's dry. I get the hose, and I sit in my car, and I call the colonel. I say, Colonel, I have good news, and I have bad news. <laughs> the good news is I have the hose. The bad news is there's a geyser in the chapel. <laughs> you know, and so thank God the fire department is also on the base on Christmas Day. God bless these people who protect us, right? And so they go over and then turn the water main off. And I walk up to the outside of the alert barn, and I'm just dripping wet like a rat and stuff like that. And then he just starts laughing. He said, Father, the good news is we have towels and we have a washer dryer and stuff. So I go in there, and now I'm wearing an OD green undershirt, and we celebrate Mass together. It was a weird Christmas. <laughs> But that moment that I started to smile and laugh when I was gushing with water is the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness could be like, I don't know, I'm going to Chipotle for lunch. You know, I don't know, whatever it is. There's many things that might give you some method of happiness, right? But joy penetrates even through pain and difficulty and suffering. It was in that moment that I was like, this is why I am a priest. I was like, why in the world am I happy? This is a terrible moment. <laughs> and it's just like, but I realized I was supposed to be there. If I had not forgotten the host that day, that water would have gushed for probably two weeks and may have destroyed the chapel completely. But because of my mistake, <laughs> the Lord made something greater come out of it. We are here to recognize our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And like the widow and the widow's might, to give everything to him. So this year of Eucharistic revival that we're going on in the United States, when we receive the Lord today, when you gaze upon him while I'm celebrating this Mass, give everything to him. What is the thing that you have to give? What is the suffering that you have? And you unite it to him and you put it at the foot of this altar. I know that's a really long homily, but I can talk forever about the Lord. Stay with us, Lord. Stay with us, right? 
that same feeling that those disciples had on the road to Emmaus, I have. So that's what I want all of you to have as well. So give yourself to him today as fully as you possibly can. Unite your heart to him. And let's go out there and show the world who we are. God bless you all today.